unrelenting Twitter abuse. It was because I was a woman and because I was a Muslim. No, we don't make fun of Islam. We're not going to do that. Threatened with ISIS by name. Sheikh Yasser Qadi, Murtad. I didn't know racism until we actually came to Melbourne. Being an Aboriginal, going through those stages of racism, why would you want to add a layer of becoming a Muslim? أعوذ بالله شيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. Today we would like to welcome you guys to the Safi Bros podcast, which is available on all podcast platforms, YouTube, and every out every Friday at 3 p.m. Please subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they drop. جزاكم الله خير. Today's episode is with an amazing brother of ours. Uh, he's quite a distinguished brother within the community. Allah. With uh, Subhanallah, multiple identity, mm. a Aboriginal Muslim, and this brother is Uncle Andrew Hassan Gardner. Mm. Like to welcome you to the Safi Bros podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam. It's a pleasure to be here. Alhamdulillah. Welcome. Alhamdulillah. Uh, I think uh, something that's quite defining for me about you is being an Aboriginal Muslim, which is extremely. Mm. Uh, Amazing. And I would like to start the podcast, to be honest, is how do you, how do you bring the identity of being a Muslim and Aboriginal at the same time? And was that a sort of a culture clash for you? And how did you bring that together as an Australian Muslim? Well, I'll go back to the start because uh, when I uh, did my conversion or reversion to Islam in 1995 <coughs> at the um, mosque in Noble Park, Bosnia Mosque in Noble Park, um, the challenge then was to show the uh, the sheikh at the time uh, that I was committed. So he told me uh, a simple proverb that they wanted uh, quality and not quantity. Now, what that means is, uh, was I prepared to stick around and persist and... Uh, do what was necessary to continue to be a Muslim. So, you know, he asked me to come back every Saturday. I went back for a few Saturdays. I figured out I was going to a madrasa because uh, there was other kids there. And this time I was 34, so I was like, mm, this is an adult education environment. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he thought that would actually test my mettle. If the kids, if I couldn't put up with the kids, then I'd bugger off and I wouldn't have to be a, yeah. a problem. Oh, wow. uh, but I sort of stuck around. So about six months later, he at the end of every Saturday um, uh, training, let's say, uh, we would do duha uh, prayers. At the end of this uh, particular one, he called all the brothers back, ah, Hassan's going to make his uh, shahada, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we progressed from there. Um, I, I spoke to my sister about it. My sister was concerned that I would lose my Aboriginal culture, my Aboriginality. And I said, no, I won't. She said, well, how can you tell me? How can you prove that to me? I said, well, uh, the most populous nation of Muslims is in our northern shores, uh, in Indonesia. Yeah, uh, and they have various cultural differences throughout their island up archipelago, and so they have one main language, Bahasa. They have uh, Arabic as their uh, connection to uh, Islam, but each island has a slight variation to their cultural practice. But they all don't lose that, even though they're still Muslim. Well, Majority are Muslim. Mm. Now, 
she said, oh, yeah, okay. Then well, uh, you know, I said, well, I won't lose mine. Why? Because the similarities. The similarities are the belief in the one creator spirit. Our belief that there's uh, Aboriginal people's belief that there's one creator spirit uh, in our situation is called bunjil, uh, the witch tale legal. And so it wasn't like Hinduism where there's a, a God for everything. Yeah, right? wow. So you've got one creator spirit. Uh, you also got issue around men's and women's business. So women's uh, practices um, and men's practices were quite separate. Segregation. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, the process of becoming a man was in a particular site. A woman's uh, process was in another site. Oh, wow. They had specific birthing areas. Those kinds of things were relevant that women knew about. So there were little signposts, etchings on trees. They call them um, fletchers. And, and that would have a an etched design on it. In other words, men would see that and go, you don't trespass here because it's a woman's site. So you turn around and go wow. back the other way. Same way the other way, women were hunting or gathering over in that area and they'd see a sign place, this is a male ceremony site. They'd go, okay, we can't go any further, go over here. So these things were quite relevant about separating that. When we had our get-togethers, our um, corroboree, our uh, uh, political practice, uh, where other groups would come together and we'd have ceremonies, uh, they were quite separate too. Yeah. So the women were over there and the men were over here. A lot of similar Islam, yeah? So um, there was another thing about um, marriage, arranged marriage, um, uh traditions around um, tribal areas, uh, clan areas. Wow. Um, a lot of similarities around the fact that uh, elders had a high regard. So elders mm. would be asked for their opinion about all sorts of things. In Islam, we call this shura. So we had a same similar practice. We'd go to elders, ask them for an opinion, and they would either at one of these big gatherings, all the men would talk about this particular thing if it was really significant, and they would give somewhat of a fatwa. Yeah? So, yeah, uh, so there's, there was a lot of similarities. And I, and I said to her, I won't lose this because I'm grounded in this, but I'm learning this as an extension. So, they, they, both so you can see how they overlap. They, she went, mm. oh, okay, that's interesting. So she could see over the time uh, that that wasn't changing me away from my cultural practice and responsibilities um, and that I was uh, actually expanding my knowledge around Islam. Yes. And that's one thing Islam has really taught me, and that's, you know, be more controlled in your emotional content, I guess. Allah, yeah, that's mm. amazing. It is. A, it it is. is a, I think I think that's that's the true Islam, yeah. is being able to control oneself. Well, yeah. One who one is a control himself is a control yeah. of everything, really. Yeah. Allah bless you. Uh, can, oh, this is amazing that, you know, subhanAllah, that you, f you can sort of mould that cultural identity. Mm. Uh, so mum and dad both Aboriginal? No, no, just my mum. Okay. Yeah. How yeah. many brothers and sisters? Yeah. I got, oh, I had one sister. So she sadly passed away uh, 2022. Twenty Subhanallah. So the one that gave you the advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, older sister always got to do the control thing, you know. Yeah, Subhanallah. <laughs> Did she end up converting or coming Islam? No, no, but she respected my choice and uh, could see how that didn't take me away from my uh, cultural responsibilities. Yeah. So mum had a, quite a huge influence on you in regards to your Aboriginal identity then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How, how did that sort of play out? Can you give us the landscape of that? Well, my mum, through my mum, uh, we're related to the uh, Wurundjeri clans of the Wurrung people. So as we were saying earlier, our traditional country is from the Werribee River in the west through its flow up to the Great Dividing Range, easterly across to Mount Borbore, down through Bunyip and across to 
uh, Mordialic Creek. Wow. So a fair chunk of Melbourne. Um, so this story has been passed on from our elders for generations. And uh, this is a truth that we believe in our elders uh, who tell us the truth. We had an oral history, not a written history. So that direct memory um, translated into stories, tell us, uh, you know, tell us those stories of, of uh, true things in the past. As, as, as it's an oral sort of, in the Aboriginal world, is an oral, oral sort of uh, history, yep. what would be the most sort of profound oral story that you heard from your mum that, about, your, about your sort of identity as an Aborigine? Well, uh, uh, our traditions uh, in terms of our cultural, uh, uh, traditional um, lands is one thing, but our, our family line goes back through um, uh, quite a number of generations. And one significant uh, elder who was a head man of the Wurundjeri Willem clan um, it was actually a signatory of the Batman uh, Treaty in 1835. Can you, can you take us through what that means, the Batman Treaty? What, what was well, that? The, uh, John Batman came to Victoria, Melbourne then. Victoria didn't, wasn't created yet. <laughs> uh, he came to Melbourne town uh, through uh, the governor of Van Diemen's Land in Tasmania, and uh, he was sent here to see if he could make some relationships with uh, Indigenous people uh, to see if there was a possibility that we could use some of those lands. Oh, Wow. But when he came, he sought to negotiate a treaty for himself because that copy of that Batman Treaty, which is in the museum, and I have a copy at home, oh, wow. um, it actually is written in English prose and it quite specifically declares that he would be the uh, beneficiary of anything uh, forevermore. Right? Anything developed in yeah, Victoria. That's right. So he was trying to be the first property developer. Right? Oh, wow. He was very sneaky. Before his but time. All it was from, all it was for was some hatchets, some blankets, some tea, coffee, uh, and stuff our people never used. Our people didn't have blankets. We had possum skin cloaks. We didn't have tea and we didn't have sugar. We had sugar bag, which was uh, um, uh, native bees, made native bee honey, uh, which we called sugar bags because you'd pull the, pull the honey hive and out and put it into a bag and you'd keep carrying that and you could uh, tap into it as you as you walked, as you went around. Um, but... Um, we didn't have tea, we didn't have sugar, we didn't have uh, uh, all the other well, hatchets. We'd already made our own stone axes. So even though that might have been a really deadly uh, implement to have, how would we have made it? How would we have refashioned that? We wouldn't have because it was steel. We didn't have steel. So a lot, of the art, a lot of the things that he was offering for translation, for payment for the land, we wouldn't have used. The other thing, with the actual treaty document itself, um, it was written in Old English prose with a nice uh, right-hand sweep to it. And the first two or three signatures have that same right-hand uh, sweep to them. Now, these elders, these Aboriginal men who signed this document did it without even having a pen licence and never having gone to school, never having held a pen and used it. So they didn't know what it was. So when they actually started to fumble with it, Batman actually held their hand and scrawled their name. Oh, wow. What's your name? Oh, Bear Bear Jen. Is that about it? Oh, okay. So he scrawled their name. They didn't know the alphabet. So how could they have signed their name? The rest of them were all X's. So who knew who signed what? Because it was just an X. So Batman did this document very sneakily. Um, 
and and um, um, <laughs> he he did it very thoughtfully because when he went back to Van Diemen's Land, the uh, the governor of the day then uh, actually cancelled it, actually annulled it. I did. Yes, because he that's what he what he that's not what he was sent there to do. He came back saying, "Look what I got! I got this, and it's all mine. You ain't getting nothing." So he was. <laughs> so he was. He was uh, trying to do a Donald Trump development he was, property. Uh, he was being a sneaky. <laughs> so uh, these are the things that a lot of Aboriginal people since then have lost faith or lost the trust in people that provide that advice. Yeah, because mm. while this was going on in the 1830s, treaty was being negotiated in uh, New Zealand in Aotearoa with the Maori chieftains. So the same time this was going on, they were negotiating then in the 1800s. So if they did that there and they fully explained what they were negotiating about and they didn't do it here, why? Because mm-hmm. here people were sent here as convict labour and as uh, squatters settler class. In New Zealand, because the Maoris were very much a warring people, the, uh, the European... Uh, um, uh, the European, um, well, we won't call it invasion because they didn't invade. They 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 attempted to see how they could um, uh, establish themselves there amongst the warring people that I knew that have a lot of combatants about. So they decided, well, we're not going to win these wars because these dudes are big and they're going <laughs> to smash us. So we better negotiate something with them. So that's what they did. They They spent quite some time negotiating what the treaty would be. Treaty Waitangi was the result. So um, it should have been done here too, but it was a different kind of, it was a different settlement proposition. Mm. Uh, they didn't know Australia was way bigger than New Zealand, two little islands, right? So uh, New Zealand being very hilly up and down, they probably saw more value in negotiating that than here because they could see here was going to be a greater expanse. Um so t- just take us back. Uh, so your mum told you all these stories as a young chap? Did she always tell you about her? No, yeah, parents? yes. They, she told us about our uh, our uh, family connections, who we were related to, and how far those things went back. Um, our our, uh, our traditional country area. Was she part of any organisation? Did she? No, was mum was mum was quite a uh, a, a quiet person. Um, she was she was she was very excitable when she was around family, obviously, but. Um, you know, when my mum and dad got married, which was 54, they moved up to northwest Victoria because uh, dad found some work and was offered some work up there. So he was coaching and playing a lot of footy up there as well. So uh, the local footy clubs and that looked after him. So Did they, Were they alive when you converted? Uh, my mum passed away in 84, so no. But my, my dad only passed away in uh, 2021. So he was, and and he was how alive. was he about your conversion? He was all right about it. Yeah, he, he heard what I was saying to my sister he said, well, you know, I believe if he's making the right choice, he's, he's considered it and it's not going to be detrimental to anybody. Mm. So you're so the only boy as well. Yeah. Wow. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. take us through your sort of your growth in school and I don't know if you've got any stories of uh, the, the hardships you faced uh, through school and any sort of... Uh, well, yeah, the hardships were that the, uh, a lot of teachers saw you as the Aboriginal kids, so you were the expert on Aboriginal issues. Oh, wow. So as a kid, oh, Andrew, so could you tell us about this? i got no idea. Oh, but you, and, and so the, it, it created a lot of embarrassment for you. you know, a lot of other kids would then tease you afterwards. So it wasn't just asking you inappropriately. It was actually causing 
uh, a dysfunction within the class and outside in, in the in the in the playground, right? So I'd go home and I'd tell my mum. She'd go, "Listen, you just have to be, you just have to think about responding in a better way. Don't respond uh, aggressively." Because uh, in grade three, when we moved down to Melbourne in 1969, uh, my three grade my grade three teacher, I remember uh, chewing some chewing gum uh, before uh, lunch, and during lunchtime, come back after, and then you know she got upset that I was chewing chewing gum in the class, so she got it to spit it out, yeah, and then she stuck it right on my eyeball. Oh wow! <laughs> right on my eye. And that's why I always got a difference in my uh, eyebrow. So my eyebrow, I was picking it out for the rest of the day. So I got home with half an eyebrow. My mum goes, what's going on with that? Uh, well, I was chewing, chewing gum, and the teacher stuck it there, and I've been picking it out every si- ever since, and now I've got half an eyebrow. Oh, she shouldn't have done that, but you shouldn't have been chewing, chewing gum in the first place either. Okay, right. How old were you then? Uh, three. In seven, eight. Uh, yeah, wow. Maybe, uh, was it five? Which school? Yeah, that's six, seven, <laughs> yeah about eight, nine. The Harrisfield Primary School. Yeah. Remember that uh, vividly, yeah. Because that, 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 the, Austra- the, uh, the White Australia policy was still active then, you know, comparatively. Oh, course, yeah. you know? Assimilation. The White Australia policy wasn't actually for uh, Aboriginal people. We were the beneficiaries of it, negatively, uh, but it was actually uh, established to keep the Chinese out. The Chinese had come to the uh, Gold Rush era. They came in mass and they, they would fossick through everybody else's fossickings to eke out every little piece that they could, and then they'd melt that down and send it back. So, uh, you know, those in power positions saw that as, uh, mm, we've got to stop that. But so the, the Water yeah. Australia policy was established to, re, to resist uh, particularly Chinese. Um, but also, uh, so it, meant, it meant you didn't get any diversity when you were around, like, no, as a kid, right. you know? That's right. So, yeah, being the only black kid in the school. The only, towards, the, the only one? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Allahu Akbar. Yeah. So... Uh, it wasn't so bad up at Charlton because most of the kids I played with and knew at school were at the footy club and all that sort of stuff. We all we didn't I didn't mm. see race issues then. Mm. I didn't know racism until we actually came to Melbourne. Oh right? wow! So up there because my dad and everybody else was influenced and my mum was in the you know tennis club and all that sort of stuff. We we were accepted in the community up there, so I never felt that racism. Yeah. When we came to Melbourne, different kids. Hey, you little black this and you little black that. Where'd wow. that come from? Hey, mum, uh, this good dude at school t- today called me a black bastard. What are the means? Wow. Oh. And then she had to explain what that meant. Wow. I said, well, I know my dad because he's here. Uh, I'm not exactly black, but I'm brown, but I relate as an Aboriginal person, yeah. There was a time when I uh, cut myself pretty badly and I was bleeding a lot and I got so upset because my mum had told me about my Aboriginal history and all that sort of stuff that I was I was that um, – I was that anguished about it that uh, I was upset about losing my Aboriginal blood. Allah. And my sister always remembered that and always reminded me that as we were growing up, you know. Oh, you just want to lose your Aboriginal blood. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> SubhanAllah. It, it gives you that sense of pride yeah. there, you see. Allah. Mm. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. So, so when you land Melbourne, it started the, the you, first time you felt that. Yeah, you, well, multiculturalism had started here, so there was a lot of a lot more influx of other uh, um uh, 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 cultural backgrounds and nationalities come to Victoria. Most of my friends were either Italian, Greek, uh, Yugoslavian, uh, Turkish, those, that kind of background because we all copped the same racism. Wow, yep, yep. So all the other white kids thought that they were the boss. So, you know, 
it was kind of an us against them kind of thing, you know? Wow. So take us through your education, like uh, after like high school, university, what happened there? No, no, I didn't quite get into uni, but uh, I sort of got uh, sidetracked a little bit because um, I, I applied for the Navy in 1980, for the Navy in 1980. I I'm applying for the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Seems silly, yeah. yeah. But my cousin did it, so I went along for the interview, but it, it was a flop. Th- that, later that year, I actually applied for the police uh, force, um, and I missed out by three marks. Had I done that the year before, I would have got in. Wow. Right, because they had an Aboriginal advancement program then, and it finished that year. <laughs> oh, so wow. uh, they said, "Look, come back in in twelve months' time, and we'll we'll see see if we can get you in." In that time, in nineteen eighty eighty one, I was kind of, you know, I was refocusing, and you know, I was talking to my sister, and uh, you know, I'd sort of had a have a had a different direction. So, Subhanallah, mm. isn't that amazing? How it's amazing how Allah Subhanahu wa Taala sort of blocks the road and opens the roads. True. Isn't it? Yeah, where one door opens, another one opens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Closes, another one opens. It's true. Actually, true. Yeah. And you don't even see it coming. Yeah. Actually, no, no, you don't. You, you, don't. Ma- you make a decision about that to close. Oh, I'll finish that. Next minute, this opportunity comes. It was just like it was just like when um, uh, when I had the opportunity. Uh, fortunate opportunity to go to Hajj in 2013. Um, I'd broken my ankle then in December 2012 and about May uh, a person showed up at our door. Uh, we were living in, um, my wife and I were living in uh, Craigieburn and uh, her brother uh, turned up with a friend of his. Uh, G'day, this, that and the other. He just happened to be the president of AFIC. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, we understand you're Aboriginal and you're a Muslim. Would you like to go to Hajj this year? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it hadn't actually dawned on me, but, it, you know, it was something that I was planning to do, but, you know, it's kind of on me now. I just broke my ankle, but, you know, what does that mean? Uh, well, you need to give us an answer by the end of the week. This was Wednesday. You need to give us an answer by the end of the week uh, and we'll, we'll uh, see about assisting you to get there. Oh, Okay. So, you know, I spoke to my wife the next day, had a chat, said, yeah, all right. So it, it, as soon as we made the decision to, yes, I'd like to go to Hajj, I'd like to answer the call of invitation from Allah, then things just fell into place. It's amazing. It's, it is quite amazing. That feeling of you don't actually have to try hard. You still do what you need to do, but you don't actually have to try hard because things just fell into place. It was, it was amazing. And then by the time we actually went, um, there was an issue about smoking. So we'd done six weeks of uh, Hajj courses with uh, Newport Mosque and uh, they said, you know, you can't smoke when you're at Hajj. Oh, okay then. So we're going to have to stop smoking. All right. So the Friday <laughs> before we left on the, mo- on, the we- on the Sunday, the flight on the Sunday, the Friday we stopped smoking. Probably should have done it the week before, but anyway. Um, <laughs> So in the in the in the transition, I was like, mm. so the only thing I took me for me was those little lozenges, and I only used a quarter of them. Subhanallah. For for Hajj, because we were so busy and so focused, and the heat and the uh, air conditioning and everything sort of just was a profound uh, experience. Allah supported us. I got to say, it was just yeah, just we're able to not worry about that, and I didn't feel to smoke. But when I got there, when we got there. Everybody's smoking. <laughs> I was like, you told us you couldn't smoke. A little everybody's smoking. It's like, oh. But we decided. He said, well, wouldn't it be better for you? Okay, you got me on that one. Yeah, it, is, it should be better for us. 
let's decide, keep doing. So by the time I got back, after the two weeks, I come back, I didn't feel like smoking. I didn't feel that thing. So um, where I was working at the Dandenong Aborigines Cooperative, we actually had a a supporting people give up smoking program. It's a national part of a national program for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Anyway, so I, I, I logged into that when I came back and they supported with me with uh, just checking in every now and then and how things are going. But most importantly, um, after 100 days, you actually get a breathalyzer test to test your monoxide, uh, carbon monoxide uh, rates in your breath. And if it's pretty much zero, you're pretty right to continue on without too much of a difficulty because oh, wow. that's what keeps you hooked. Yeah. On smoking. Oh, wow. So the carbon monoxide is amongst the other um, the other um, chemicals yeah. and stuff in it. That's what keeps you hooked. So if you can get to that point and it's zero, then you, you're clear sailing after that. Can, so. I, can I ask, at 35, being an Aboriginal, going through those stages of racism, why would you want to add a, a layer of becoming a Muslim <laughs> well, and, and copying more? Yeah, but see, I, I hadn't had a religious connection most of my life. I remember going to uh, uh, Sunday school. Uh, back in the early 60s, my dad was, uh, he was engaged in the, in, the, in the supporting church activities and stuff. But when we came to Melbourne, it sort of fizzled. And um, he, didn't, he didn't continue that. And so we only just went to the Sunday school thing and, uh, read a bit of basic stuff about the Bible and stuff, but so it, I didn't feel myself Presbyterian, very religious, Methodist, or anything, right? So, um, uh, so when I spoke to my friends that were at uh, Monash Uni at that time, who were Muslim, who clearly dressed as a Muslim, they had their uh, you know the head cap and their abaya and stuff, they um, they weren't they didn't come across controlling. They did the thing, which is expected of all Muslims, and that is show the best sides of what a Muslim should be. Wow. Have that good character that other people can see in you that they don't have a negative attitude towards being, yeah? So they, they only, I only ever saw that good side of them. Mind you, the TV during the 70s was very negative Muslim. Yes, you know, with yeah, with the that's why I'm Iranian control of the, the oil embargoes and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Olympics. You saw the Ayatollahs, the, he was always figured as the evil thing on TV and, and when you when you start sort of researching that stuff, all the other people who were actually putting that up was the ones that the evil doers, really. So, you know, the American foreign policy got a lot to answer for all the trouble that they caused in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, you know, putting up the Shah of Iran and uh, funding him and, you know, putting up Saddam Hussein. You know, he saw the light and then turned on that. But, you know, <laughs> the Shah was there as a puppet. yeah. You know, and and the people rose up against that because they could just see that was an oil embargo for the for the Americans. You know, I think I think that's a, an important topic that we touch on. Subhanallah, especially our dad, Allah Hamu, and, and the elders would always always say to us. My dad would always say to us, "Look at history. History's got a way of repeating itself. Yeah, yeah. To know where you're from, to understand." Yeah. And today's generation, touching on that, Subhanallah, mm. and I know I've met you a few times where you're always going back to the history and making mm. the youth understand. Mm. Guys, you have to mm. understand. How we got here? Yeah. What's happened? What's taken sure. place? And I think Subhanallah, but shows like you know, the Urtugu show and the Sultan sure. Abdul Hamid yes, shows yes, that yes. are coming out of Turkey are yes. so profound because yes. people understand understand our history, our yes. you know, our Ottoman Empire, and understanding yes. what happened and what took place. Because yes. a lot of us have lost that really. Yeah, yeah. 
Really, no, is. a lot of my a lot of my wife's brothers and cousins, uh, male cousins, who've watched that, and their nephews, they've all watched those those shows, and there's this sense of renewed pride when yes. they actually sit there. Oh, did you see Ertical? You know, and they kind of sit there with, oh, I saw that, and it, and it really it was impacting on them. Yes, it actually oh, gave right. them that sense of pride, which is what I was talking about earlier about the uh, the documentary film before 1770, that took Muslim youth from Sydney and took them to Northern Territory, to a lot of places in Arnhem Land that had had Islamic connection since the late 1500s by the Makassan fishermen who were Muslim from the island of Sulawesi in uh, Indonesia. Now, that predates Cook. That predates lots of others who came to these shores. Um, And they came with a respectful manner. So much so that they continue to come back and come back and come back for centuries, right? Yeah, the Afghan Kamaliyas were brought here in the 1800s to open up the Red Centre to create uh, opportunity to get business and stuff done through Adelaide to Alice Springs to Darwin. Yes. They created the roads and they created infrastructure, the infrastructure and they helped create the, uh, the Garn Railway. When those projects were finished, those Afghan Kamaliyas sort of dispersed. Some of those had relationships with Aboriginal women. And so there's a lot of Aboriginal people that have got Muslim names, may not practice Islam, uh, but they've got Muslim names nonetheless. Now, these Aboriginal uh, Yomlu men from Arnhem Land in Northern Territory who had this contact, their heritage contact with, uh, with the Makassan fishermen, they have that recall. There is a, an exhibition, an art exhibition, a cultural exhibition on at the Broadmeadows Town Hall at the moment, and it shows and depicts art and connection between uh, Makassan and Yolnu people. Wow. And it describes that connection that they've had since that late 1500s. Now, why should we accept ago, European invasion that decimated our people, whereas the Muslim engagement created a friendship. And it specifically, and it actually has uh, those Aboriginal indicators. They actually went to those places wow. in Arnhem Land and they, those, young, those youth that attended, you can actually see their change in their attitude. Gone from, oh, I'm a Muslim and nobody cares to, hey, I'm a proud Muslim Australian. Mm. I'm entitled to be here because I'm an Australian. I can grow up here. And, and those Aboriginal people accepted us. And they said, because they're the first Australians. Oh, wow. So it created a new generation of ideas. And that was, I, that was specifically set up to combat the, the threat, which was going to be another Cronulla riot. Serious? It was a threat, yeah. It so. could have exploded into that. The amount of young people in Sydney yes, who, were, yes. who were being compressed about that, why don't you go back to the country you came from? Hey, I was born here. My parents are Turkish or my parents are Albanian or whatever, or they're Lebanese or whatever. Why should I go back to that country? I don't know that. I, I've only grown up here. Mm. Who are you to tell me to go back? Some white Australian kid that thinks they're yeah. SH1T don't think. There's, there's an Islamic identity here, which is 500 years old, really, yeah, exactly. in perspective. There is a place called El Amin, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, which is the, the name of the Prophet, peace be upon him, yeah. El Amin. We do go back 500 years of heritage of Islamic exactly. history in Australia. People say, plus. where's the first mosque? Everybody always says, oh, the one in Adelaide. <laughs> no. The, uh, the Macassan little building on the coast of Northern Territory, wherever that was, that they created a little uh, uh, shelter to pray in, that's the first mosque. Yeah, wow. Wow. So, so for the young Muslim youth, we've been here before Point Cook. 
That's right. <laughs> Before Point Cook. Before, exactly. <laughs> Before Mr. Yeah. Cook. Yeah. So Subhanallah. now you've got an identity. So if that's how you go back to your country, yeah, exactly. they were many before exactly. you guys. Islam was here before. Allahu Akbar. And you're Muslim, so you've got a connection. Subhanallah. That's amazing. MashaAllah. Like, uh, um, so you learn these things and it improves your connection and understanding. But it also has it gives you a responsibility to explain that to others and bring people onto that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So as a Muslim, as a Muslim, but an Aboriginal person, you know, I feel it's a responsibility to share that with Muslims to actually encourage them to engage that way. Mm. That's why that's such an important thing. I've seen that many times. I actually did the welcome for the launch of that at the Cinema Central in the city in uh, 2018. It was great to meet the Sheikh who uh, who uh, set that idea up. And actually funded it through the Hanifa Center. Allah, so wow, it was a great idea. Mashallah, you, you've been very active yourself, 30 years plus uh, mm. uh, in Aboriginal affairs, I think, yep. uh, through government. And That's right. yep. you've, you've done, you've got executive positions, you, yep. uh, you sit on boards currently, yep. uh, you also were CEO of yep. uh, multiple, uh, and hundreds of people, 100 people under your responsibility. You yeah, know? Yeah. Can you share some of those uh, struggles? Mashallah, like, you know, you're quite accomplished in yourself as well. Like, and I think just, just talking about just your Aboriginal and Islamic heritage is not alone. Mashallah, mm. your accomplishments are massive. So when, you, when you look back and you go back to the, what I was talking about, family, our family traditions and our family line, there's a lot of leadership positions that have come down through that. And you have that sense of responsibility and it's ingrained in you to actually deliver that for other people, yeah? So wow. leadership has been a strong thing from that head man to his daughter because his son, uh, who was William Barrack, the famous head man of our uh, people, um, but he didn't have any descendants that survived. So his sister did. Mm. And her, her children and their children come into my mum's line and, of course, me and my children, right? So um, – We've got that sense of leadership responsibility. My sister was a, a community leader for a long time, and she only passed away in uh, uh, August 22. Um, but, you know, I was, on the, I was the CEO of the Dandenong Aborigines Cooperative for 15 years. Uh, in that, responsible for primary health care, doctors and nurses, a primary health care clinic, which had to be uh, maintained to accreditation standards nationally. Um, had uh, aged care responsibilities. We had some housing that we leased out to some community members who were members of the organisation. We had youth programs, family service programs, um, a whole bunch of things that responded to a lot of different needs in the community. What would you say to the Aussies, like even a Lebanese Aussie Muslim? I used to hear this a lot from people. Say, oh, how's it our fault, this new generation, of what the predecessors have done, the old... Australians, why do we have to apologise? What have I got? What would you say to those young Aussies that are saying, "Well, we don't. What? Why are we to blame for the old or the old mistakes?" Mm. What would you say as a Muslim Australian? Mm. What would you say to some of these these comments that are coming out saying? Well, firstly, they need to understand or learn and research and understand uh, those things that they object to or don't subscribe to of the past generation, uh, but also then make a statement that that's not what they are. Because here's the same thing. Lots of young Japanese were labelled with the responsibility of what their grandparents did in the Second World War. And they say the same thing. We're not responsible for what they did. We weren't there then. We can't explain and apologise and continue to apologise for what they did. We can say that one time and seek to help others to 
uh, improve their situation, but we can't just magically click our fingers and it's all right again. The, the issue is that people need to be able to have the opportunity to participate and support. And if that doesn't come, then people are just showing their true colours, isn't it? Mm. So, yes, we need to reflect on ourselves so that we can improve uh, on helping others. So don't accept what people said in the past. We, are, we all hate uh, Lebanese people coming to Australia. We, are, we hate all Muslims. Why do you do that? Why have they said that? How can we change that view sure. that everybody's Australian? How can we say everybody has the fair opportunity of, of, a, of a fair go to participate in Australian life uh, and multiculturalism is, is alive and well and we participate and help that and support that? That way people can overcome that and actually explain that they're there to support others too. Amazing. Amazing. So, uh, just asking this question, those, those roles that you've taken in, in, the, in those high Aboriginal communities, being a Muslim, was that ever a struggle for you? Was yeah, it was. Um, uh, we had a Friday barbecue at the Dandenong Co-op. Uh, every Friday we'd invite the community in and external agencies would be invited to come and probably help deliver some information sessions to community while they take advantage of that. Um, and so I tried to introduce the use of uh, halal meats. So uh, some people went, mm, I don't know about that. So they told a couple of directors. One director got up me one day and said, we don't want to have that stuff here. I said, what do you know about what the meat is? It's meat. It's cut up from an animal. What else do you need to know? Oh, it could be bloody poison for all we know. I said, okay, let me explain. It's halal. Do you know what halal is? No. Okay, let me explain what halal is. It means that the animal's blessed when it's slaughtered. In other words, we're saying thank you, God, for giving me this animal that we're going to use to consume and feed ourselves with. But it's also checked for impurities. It's also checked to make sure it was, it's good to actually eat. So do you know that for a fact, the meat you buy at the supermarket? He goes, uh, no. So this, I know, has been checked. If you, don't, if you don't want to eat it, that's fine. If you don't think anybody else should eat it, that's fine. But I should be able to eat it. So why are you excluding me? Oh, no, you can get, you can get the whole meat for yourself. <laughs> that's okay. Other people picked it up and started eating it too. But at the end of the day, it was an opportunity to explain what that meant. It Amazing. Wasn't, then mm. making a foreign the, thing. The, the, so you're giving Dawah to both. Exactly. Allah so Akbar, yeah. That's amazing. So he changed his tune after that. Allah Akbar, yeah. It was, a, it was an immediate 180-degree turn. He said, look, I, look, look, I'm sorry, but people told me it was, you know, it was poison and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, ignorance, man. It's, it's How ignorance. am I going to bring why, – why would I bring meat that's going to poison people? Think about it, really. Oh. Would I let that happen? No. So then – if it's this way, and it's actually better for you, because I can actually explain it. When you go to a slaughter yard, those animals are stressed. And when they actually talk to each other, before they actually get to the, get the, all those, other, all those other cows see the other ones get knocked off. They're stressed. They know what's happening, right? Hmm. Whereas when an animal's slaughtered that it's halal, they're actually calmer. So when they're actually, actually killed, they're, they haven't reabsorbed the urea from their bladder and cause their muscles to tense up. Because mm. when you cook that, it goes really tough. Whereas halal meat, when you cook it, it's very tender and it's nice. Why? Because the animal's less stressed. Yeah, oh, I you didn't eat, know man. that. I didn't know that. There you go. So not only did that person change their attitude every Friday, did you get your meat? Did you get your meat? <laughs> you want to try some? Oh, okay. So you tried some? Oh, it doesn't matter. Get, just get it now. Subhanallah. So nobody was the wiser. So 
when you explain to people individually, it's a different kettle of fish for them. They yes. have a different perspective. Oh, we thought it was like that. No, it's not like that. Who told you that? Mm, I'd no. like to know who that was who was causing the, the fitna. The, the fitna, know? yeah. <laughs> <my life. laughs> can, I, can we ask, I just would like to ask you for your, you know, your life career and also your personal, what would be the most difficult moment in your life? And uh, how, did, how did Islam allow you to fight that through? What would you say? The first difficult thing in my life would have been the loss of my mum. So when my mum passed away in 1984, um, I was closer to my mum and my older sister was closer to my dad, yeah, right? So um, it was different when my dad passed away uh, in 2021. He and I, as I was growing up, you know, we were more mates. Yeah, he's my dad. And, you know, when the Andrew voice was on, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm, I'm the son. But everything we did was kind of mates, right? We helped build this and make a chook yard and make an aviary for birds, all sorts of things. So uh, there was a different respect level. My mum I was emotionally connected to more because your mum, right? Oh. But um, she also mothered me a bit, I guess, so, <laughs> being the only boy. Only child, yeah, yeah, only so, boy, yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was tough because there was a lot of community members who attended her funeral. Oh, I remember your mum and, and a lot of my family Oh, we miss Sandy and then we miss them. Yeah, you're making me sad now. Just can you kind of go away and <laughs> breathe to yourself? But you've got to be able to rise above that and help other people get over that. As you're doing that, you're helping yourself. Mm-hmm. So when people say you've got to be able to help yourself before you can help others, it can be kind of at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, yeah, you should try and get resilience for yourself and then help others. but uh, I found it easier to do that as I was helping others. Yeah? Mm. So um, I used my immediate thoughts of my mum's expectation of what I would be and what I should do to be able to help continue to ground me. Yeah? Mm. So when my dad passed away, it was different because obviously I was an adult way, way greater, um, already a parent, already been married once or twice. And so, you know, that, um, that, Adult confidence was already there. You know, for a good six months before he passed, you know, I'd go and see him every day. And I was actually recording stories from him on my phone, and I still got them. So I play them to my son and my daughter occasionally. They, they hear his voice, and they, oh, it's like he was in the room. Well, he is in here. Don't forget him, you know. So uh, it, was, it was great to be able to get his mm, little bit of his uh, personal story his personal journey, his story documented to a point. And, um, and that fulfilled him. He got a fair bit of stuff off his chest. And I think that helped him when he got to that point when he was, when he passed, he felt Mm. free to leave kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, this is one of the biggest reasons why we started this podcast is because Mm. we want to be able to, we want to actually tell our Muslim story and, and, and document it. This is, mm. it's, this is one of the most important mm. things. That's why we actually yeah, started it's help, Like you were saying earlier, it's helping to share that, that capacity and enable others to learn that resilience for themselves too. Yeah. So then they can rise above some of those issues. It's easy to say, look, just be strong. Be strong for your family and, and everything will be okay. Th- that takes a toll. And I've seen that in other family members, mm. that it takes that toll. And when that's all passed, they have their own little breakdown. Yeah, now, yeah. they can avoid that breakdown and stay strong. Prior to that, be, be more resilient. 
So when they've actually passed that immediate grief process, they can say they can stay strong for themselves, not everybody else. Mm. So there's a difference. Staying strong for yourself is knowing that you've got a resilient capacity. It's not forgetting the person or forgetting what you're grieving about, but it's uh, putting that a little bit to the back of your mind and storing it so that when you want to, you can bring it out straight away. I think about my mum nearly every day. And a lot. Yeah. Now, she's been gone since 1984, but that doesn't arrest my memory of her. Yeah. Because the, the night before she passed, I actually visited her in hospital. And I'd visited her every day prior to that for about a week, right? So I had this memory and I had this conversation with her. Um, and so, you know, when we got told that, uh, you know, that she'd passed, yes, it was a shock because I only saw her yesterday. But I was also happy that she wasn't suffering. Alhamdulillah. Did Islam itself help you grieve? Like, was that like, because we, we do have a grieving process as Muslims yeah, yeah. that help you really grieve. Like, I, I love the fact that you said uh, you grieved, but you also dealt with it through helping others. Mm. And that's amazing. Is this what we do as Muslims? Is that yeah, we, we're right. there helping each other, right. you know, through the funeral process yes. and yes. all that and, yeah. and helps us deal with it, which means yeah. we don't crash afterwards, like you that's said. Right. Yep. SubhanAllah. Yeah, there's so many mainstream people that do that. You know, they don't have anything else. They're, they're, they're strong, 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 and then they'll crash. Mm. Why? Because they've been strong for everybody else, but everybody else isn't supporting them either. You mm. see, so there's, there's got, see, Islam, Muslim community has this, let's uh, surround these individuals, help them through this time, and we're still that support mechanism. And it gradually dissipates as the person's yes, recovering. Right, that's right. And they become, they're, they're not external to the community. They're still a part of it. And they, they know there's this sense of, uh, support, and they can ring. Oh, look, I'm not feeling too good today. That, oh, that's all right. Let's have a chat and come and have a cup of tea or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So, people don't let those family connections dissipate. Mm. It's hello. We, had, we just talked yeah, to a brother yeah, yeah. yesterday. Just a couple of days ago, it was hello. I was talking to the brother and how 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 this lost his, uh, you know, his mother, and he, he was telling about how people still bring it up and, and, and it helps yeah. him. You know what I mean, so we've got that support. Yeah, there. and I, I think I think like like you, you even growing up, you know the or the Aussie mentality was, you know, 18, get out. You know, that mentality, you know, I've done my job, get out. Mm. But ours is all about that. Yeah. You know, it's all about that connection with the, with, with the lineage and making sure right. that lineage is continues. You mm. know, the, I don't know if it's an Islam Family thing or name. Wok being or, but it's because, and, 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 and the, you know, my Aussie mates used to like, you know, when I hugged my sister or I kissed mm. my brother goodbye, mm. it was, you know, alien to them. It was mm-hmm. like, what are you kissing your sister for? I'm like, and my sister, mm. you know, what I mean, it was like alien to them at you know the Luke's, the Davids that I went to at St Matthews were like, yeah, yeah. you know, this guy is this, you know, is he all there because mm. they were always punching on with their brothers, so they didn't have that love. But we were brought up on that love. Yeah, exactly. Subhanallah. Mm. So what was the second? Uh, was the second thing. It was probably um, marriage breakup because you lose that sense of purpose. You immediately you have that sense of loss and failure. Um, and rejection too, by the way. It wasn't me left, it was the other person left. So you've got that, um, they've left me, I'm called so bad about me, you know. And so you do have that depression feeling. Um, I was isolated where I was. It has a way of, um, it has a way of you needing to draw that resilience you have mm. and how you can get past that um, 
that difficulty, let's say, that sense of loss, but that sense of how did this get to this point? Like if it isn't going to recover, okay, at least you tried. But if it's just in front of you, it's like, mm, that's harsh. <laughs> so the sense of rejection, all that sort of stuff, which is tough for young people. It is tough. When you have a relationship and, uh, you know, in your 20s, yeah, that is devastating because you're still formulating your, your, your um, who you are and, mm. and that sense of uh, responsibility and capacity. But um, as, a, as, a, as a further adult, as a Muslim, I had that to fall back on though. You know, I could go down to the mosque and sit there and read and talk to the sheikh and talk to other people and about various things, and I didn't have to think about that at home. Yeah. So, um, and then, and then Allah uh, gave me the opportunity to take responsibility for my kids directly. Yeah. So out of the blue, their mum rings up, says, "Look, they're giving me the SH1Ts. Can they come and stay with you?" Oh, yeah, sure. How many? So, how many kids? Two. So that gave me a new. Focus, not just on, oh, bugger me, but it's about how do I kind of be a parent now? How do I look after them? How do I provision for them? How do I make sure that their lives don't don't lose? Yeah, so. Allah opens doors and closes. Exactly. Oh, SubhanAllah. Exactly. Amazing. SubhanAllah, I, I, I read a comment last night, it was SubhanAllah, that you said that and resonates where I, it said, I was chasing you, but I had to look back and see I was still there. Ah. Allah, yes. you know, and that sort of resonated yeah. with what you were saying, yeah. Allah, yeah. because sometimes we lose ourselves chasing, sure, and we forget to look back and to yeah. see if we're still there because we lose yeah. ourselves. Because mm. it goes towards what you said earlier. Um, I do, I do reflect on things with people, and it's one of the keys is you've got to be able to see where we've been to be able to plan for the future. Because yeah. otherwise, we can repeat mistakes again and again. Yes. So if we look back and see some of the mistakes we made, we can avoid them in the future. Yeah. And what yeah. did we make good re- decisions about? We can plan for make better, even better decisions in the Amen. future. So we've got to do that. We've got to have that look back 20 vision and look forward. Amen. So we're only just looking forward. We miss out on what our so mistakes Allah, were, exactly Allah, what you just said. Allah, Allah bless you. Maybe we can touch base on the two on the most happiest moments of your life, <laughs> getting <laughs> from the saddest moments. <laughs> Maybe we can touch base on that, inshallah. And then, yeah, uh, subhanAllah. I, 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 before we do that, I think I, I, know, I know there was a, a, quite a big disappointment for you that we, uh, you you were uh, writing some treaties, uh, that some quite some. Yeah, just recently, a big disappointment. So three years. Uh, 219, I got elected to the reserve seat for the Wurundjeri Warung people uh, on the First People's Assembly of Victoria. So 2019, we were elected. And for three years, we've been de- developing these three heavy pieces of work for treaty in Victoria. Uh, one was the Treaty Authority, which was an act of parliament. So that went in August 22 and was uh, signed off. Sorry, it went in June 22, got signed off in August 22. Um, there was a treaty negotiating framework. And the self-determination fund. For the ones that don't know, what does that mean? So these Sorry. are the three documents that actually enable um, traditional owner groups and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Victoria to negotiate treaty. So this year, 2024 into 25, we'll be negotiating a statewide treaty with the state government for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Victoria in the service deliveries and environments around um, health, employment, education, um, housing, because the housing need, uh, but also uh, prisons, prison reform, uh, the, uh, the Aboriginal Justice Agreement to uh, improve, uh, well, 
improve things. One is to reduce sentencing rates because they're too are too easy for magistrates to imprison people just by uh, oh you're Aboriginal. So wow. pre predisposed, we'll give you fifteen months. We're completely overrepresented as a community in prisons across yeah. Australia. Wow. For, the, in Victoria. for the population of Aborigines yeah. in Australia, mm. the representation of jail of, mm. of Aboriginal in jail is ginormous. Yeah. And that is because of sentencing practices of magistrates nationally. So we want to impact on the justice system in Victoria particularly by saying uh, there's a Koori court and it's been established since 2000. The Koori court requires an offender to plead guilty. But lots of uh, Aboriginal people are advised to go this course, but because they have to plead guilty, they get a record that they may not actually need to have. Wow. So if they plead guilty, they get a record. If they contest it, they go to court, clear their name, all the better. They don't get a record. So there's two toss-ups. But some legal advisors encourage people, just go there, yeah, it'll just, be all right. Yeah. You just have to plead guilty. Don't worry about it. But they've got a record. And that, that means something to people mm, because every employer after that is going to want to know, you've got a record, oh, what's about Oh, break, break and enters. No, no, we're not going to employ you, or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a threat to people's employment prospects and housing prospects, and lots of other uh, opportunities that people. Oh, like there's, so, there's so many challenges for oh, Aborigines wow. in Australia. Mm. So they're the they're the key factors for statewide treaty to be negotiated with the state government in the next twelve months. The downfall, the thing that I was depressed about the last couple of days, is the announcement by the state opposition, the Nationals and the Liberals to walk away from treaty because in 2022 they supported the uh, Treaty Authority Act. And now there's only one member of parliament that said no. Oh, wow. That person wasn't running for the next election, so it was, it was an irrelevancy. But every other person did. So now they turn around saying, no, we're not going to walk with treaty now. Why? Because of um, the prospects of uh, increased housing costs because of uh, uh, cultural heritage management plans, which was brought about by complaints by property developers and the VPA. I don't see that. They're the ones that have created it. Firstly, the government's the one that actually overprices the land that they sell to a developer. The developer then has to try and maximise their return on their investment, isn't it? Maximising it is one thing, but over-maximising it is another thing and blaming others for their, for their activity mm. or their, their bad judgement or whatever. I've been asked on many a times to um, to intervene and help out in a situation which I shouldn't have needed to because that person failed to do what was necessary in their backyard, in their area of responsibility as a developer. So uh, these things aren't meted out and sit directly no. with cultural heritage responsibilities. Well, it's all about it's a, dollars. It's, yeah. yeah, it's all about dollars, exactly. So if the cost of living has gone up, which I fail to understand why, but the cost of goods have gone up. So it was only the other year, lots of houses weren't being built because we had a shortage of wood in Australia. Yes. <laughs> well, who wasn't cutting the trees down? Oh, that's right. We've got to have provision for a certain amount of coops across Victoria. Coops is a wooded area. Um, but you can't cut down old growth forests. Good. Because that cuts out all sorts of habitat for different animals that are in our cultural heritage as well. So not only people... Uh, uh, over using a resource, why haven't people pushed to have steel frames 
ants don't chew them up. <laughs> Still going to stand the test of time. You don't have to cut down trees for it. So why didn't the industry turn to that as a positive way? There were more steel frame houses built in the last few years. I, yeah, I, that's I saw true, that. Yeah. But why, did, why isn't that the industry standard now? Yeah, now it's Because that stuff's much easier to resource. Yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, why blame that on cultural heritage management plants? Not. Trying to say that uh, Aboriginal people are the ones trying to rip the system off. We're the ones that actually get limited money out of that anyway. The big, the big, uh, the ones that make the most money, the developers and the government. Because the government gets the money from the land sale of the developer and guess what they get after that? Each time there's a piece of land that's sold and built on, what do they get? Rates. Stamp duty. Stamp Local duty, government right. get rates. Everybody else gets bits and pieces after that. So we're not the ones creating them. The government is. Mm. So why should we be the uh, 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 the accused reason as to why? Scapegoats. Should, yeah, yeah, they shouldn't scary. walk away from it based on no, that. No, no, no. They should have had a proper communication with First People's Assembly and, and plan to work through things, not just say, oh, no, we're not going to do that now. They'll pull the pin. Inshallah, you never know. It could, it could, it could yeah, turn Inshallah, Inshallah. Inshallah, there's blessings in it and it stays. Can I, can I ask, in your, in your obviously networks and working with government and working with community, how much of a voice does the Muslim community have? Because I know, you know, as as Muslims, we feel like we're powerless, but we, we have a big voice, but we're not using it. You know, it, it might be all, all labour seats, and it might yeah. be these yeah. certain things. We're not we're not using. You know, I remember when we were speaking to the CEO of uh, Hume, and he said to me that the uh, what was the, what was that suburb? Because because it's not a labour seat or, or liberal seat, they were able to negotiate with the government with a brand new centre of one point yeah, three million. Uh, it's what was yeah. it? Back Marsh. Back Marsh was back the, Marsh. One, one of one of the, one of the areas yeah. because it was a area where it could fall Liberal Labor. They got the most amount of money grants from the government grants from government to develop it mm-hmm. because it purely it was fifty fifty. Mm-hmm. Where comparatively to where, Wills, yeah, for example, yeah. it's yeah. all Labor. Yeah. They get nothing. Yeah. You know because why? Because everybody in this area votes Labor. Be, they get no- pork barreling as well. Yeah. 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 Subhanallah. What advice would you Sensitive. give our young youth, you know, and, and, and our Muslim community in relation to that? Continue to participate in community projects. Get behind them and support them. Not just for yourself, but for the community. I was watching uh, JFK's uh, inauguration speech the other mm, week. Yeah. And one of the keys to that was at the end, don't ask what your government can do for you. What can you do for your government or mm, the country? The country, right? yeah. So... What can Muslim youth do for the Muslim community? That's the question. And that's oh, the engagement. Beautiful. Lots that's of organisations are doing that. Yes. ICV through the uh, youth program, um, my centre through the youth program, uh, Bashar Hooli's foundation. Nation, lots of, lots of, lots of uh, organisations are doing those engagements with youth to participate in the community. Now, that's a tough call. Why? Because those youth are being influenced by mainstream media um, and it draws their attention. Mm. Um, I don't want to wear the head jab. I bet you're 16 and you should, mums telling their daughters. Um, boys, well, you should be looking around for a girl, you know, can we go and introduce you to somebody? I don't <laughs> want to get married yet, mum, do you? You know, so there's, and then there's, then there's the push by our community and our parents, uh, our you know, families to make sure our kids get a better education. 
So if they get to do a uni degree, then they're going to have an opportunity to get a better job that they would like to do or a field in what they want to work in. However, when the girl gets that and then she's getting married, the boy shouldn't be saying, now you're married, you can stay at home. Mm. Work in your field. Let her have her career for a bit and then have an agreement, five years, do your career and blah, 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 and then we're going to start a family. Yeah, and then you kind of need to, we need to negotiate about all that stuff. Not this demand straight away, whack the head jab on, you stay at home and you're controlled. No, yeah. it's wrong. You, we're, we're, we're diminishing our women's capacity to communicate and feel equal in our, in our family units. Yeah? Mm. And we should be proud to uplift them. 100%. Amen, amen, amen. Awesome, mashallah. So mashallah, you shared a, a fair bit with us, mashallah, and what an amazing story that you've had. And, and uh, mashallah. Ilayla. One of the greatest moments though. Yep. Next one. One of my greatest moments was, uh, like I said earlier, was uh, answering that invitation by uh, our Creator, Allah, for me to be able to attend Hajj. So in doing that in 2013, the first time you actually, when we, when we landed in uh, Medina, very soft, polite, softer <laughs> environment. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a great platform to start up with. Yeah. yeah so we, you went to Medina first before yeah, Mecca. Yeah. Oh. And then we went to Mecca in a different kettle. <laughs> yeah. We had the harsh. We had the. You really had to have that bag of resilience with yeah, you. Yeah, the bag of sabr. Yeah, and so yeah. that uh, that Hajj training that we did prior, it came home straight away. I was like, mm, yeah, you got to bite your tongue. Mm, yeah, you got to do this. Mm, yeah. Hang on, dude, don't step on my feet, please. You know, I won't step on you, but don't step on me. Is that fair? Okay, good. Step so you'd have all these little negotiations going off so you didn't have to yeah. lose your cool. Um, but it's a test. It's a it real is. test. And when you look at that bigger test, that bigger life test, you can see that the capa- your capacity to grow and be able to uh, fulfill that for yourself, yes. Allah going to help you every time. Allah because when, I, when we decided... Actually, to go to Hajj, we, we're actually going to say, um, yes, we, we're going to go. All right. After that, it just fell into place. It wasn't trying hard. It just, it just yes, we did this, put this, do that. This, uh, and it was easy to do. When we actually went there, being told that we couldn't smoke and we'd given up and we got there and everybody was smoking, it was a challenge. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, now we're here, better try and uh, you know, st- stop. So I did. And I haven't smoked since. Allah. Now, three years later... 2016, we went back for Umrah. Very similar, without all the Hajj uh, uh, rituals, but uh, very similar. And we did Medina and and uh, Mecca and Mecca, and uh, it was it was it was a great experience, except for the nice little fella from Bangladesh with his mum, who was on a wheelchair. Should have been on the first floor, but decided to wheel on to do tawaf and run over my toe. Oh! On the second lap, and I well, wasn't I? The steam was coming out my <laughs> neck. But how could I blame him? In that moment of fury and anger, it was calmed down by the fact that how can I deny him and his mother, particularly, the opportunity of Hajj too? Because wow. they were doing Hajj. Actually, no, they were doing Umrah. They were doing Umrah. So how could I stop that? You know, he wow. said, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And when I got back, I was limping around for the rest of the time. Allah. When I got back, I got an X-ray and yeah, I had a broken toe. But um, everything sent to test us. Yeah, yeah. I mean. And that was one of those tests for me. Yeah. Allah. So 
you you build that determined resilience after that too. 100%. You can take on all sorts of things yeah. if you can control that then. It's chipping that armour. We've had somebody on the podcast, they're chipping the armour. Just keep chipping. That's it. So I did another twelve, and I went back and I touched the side of the car and I said, why me? <laughs> Please help. So, But that was fantastic. I love why? Because when we did our final twelve, our farewell twelve, we, my wife and I, um, my wife Sadika, by the way, <laughs> we, uh, we, we hired a wheelchair edge and the dude to push us and we just, we just sat back and they, they wheeled us around and they did it full pelt. Subhanallah. Did they break anybody else's toes? <laughs> no, no, no. We were on the first floor. We did the right thing. You did the right but thing. The, but the fantastic, it was cool. It was hot. It was cool as we were there. It was enjoyable. Love. Love These two guys got paid for their service and they enjoyed it too because we had a good yarn with them. But it was a fantastic way of farewell. Subhanallah. You know? um, and that's stayed with us because every time those sorts of things pop up, we go, remember that time we are on the thing? Oh, yeah. Same feeling. Like you can go to the beach and feel that breeze. Yeah. It feels exactly like we were when we were at that Umrah. Yeah, it does. It's that fantastic memory goes back every time. I love it. I love that. And for Muslims out there, please experience that. I mean, I mean, Hajj Umrah. Hajj Umrah is an amazing experience. Amazing experience. land you can't, you can't go, yeah. I love it. SubhanAllah, like, Hashallah, you've shared amazing stories. Jazakallah khair. I just want to, I think, you know, before we... Finish up, inshallah. But I also want to like talk about the uh, sort of. I know that you, you we touched base on the sort of the early early days that you know you, you were talking about before. How there's only six major burial sites for one of the frustrations of uh, telling people generally about historical events, and one of those things is about saying that there's only twenty registered Sorry, massacre 20. sites in Victoria. I say only because there were many others who were not registered. Um, and to say um, there were 20, but how many people were killed? Who knows? But if there was hundreds of others, that's decimated a population because when Aboriginal people were populated, numbers were taken, uh, once missions were established, there was only less than 20,000 people. Oh. When they counted people up, there were other people that hadn't been put onto missions yet, but they were they were the minority. So there was lots of people that had been killed on sites, lots of women and children in camps. White fellows rode up and their horses and just started shooting. Now there's a couple of uh, films that in through my talks to people, there's a couple of films that I refer to. One's the uh, one's the uh, before seventeen seventy which is in a, in a Muslim Indigenous Aboriginal engagement. And that's relevant in our conversation. But the others are uh, Fringe Dwellers. Fringe Dwellers was produced in the 70s, uh, or maybe early 80s. Inshallah, um, we'll the link for that, Inshallah, as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, and that particularly depicts where people were pushed off missions and expected to assimilate into uh, general community because they were felt that they had white blood in them because they had to leave the mission because they had white blood. And, uh, wow. and, and they were able to survive in general community. But all it did was uh, in, 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 incite uh, discrimination and racism because they weren't accepted. That's why they were called fringe dwellers because nobody wanted them living next door to them. So they lived on the outskirts of towns, on the fringes. So the second thing was the, um, a documentary film in the 70s, mid-70s, made by John Pilger. John Pilger was a, a, a noted journalist um, who reported on the uh, Vietnam conflict 
in the late yes. 60s, yes. early yeah, 70s. I know he is. So Amazing. He came, yeah, good man. When he came back, he felt the need to look at the Aboriginal issue. And so he did a lot of research. He did visit a lot of communities. And he produced a little movie, a little uh, documentary film called uh, The Secret Country, named by Ronan Films. And every time I see that, it makes my blood boil. Why? Because it has true history that is confronting. It's confronting because people don't want to hear what those atrocities were. In some cases, you look at it and go, oh, that couldn't have happened. But it did. Mm. And when I talk about the 20 massacre sites in Victoria, there were many, many, many hundreds more across Australia where people were just shot on site. You're not supposed to be on our land. Whose land? It was their land before them. Where's your, where's your document that says this is your land anyway? Oh, no, they've just assumed an area. The settler class assumed squatters assumed uh, land that they said that was theirs. Oh, you, we can just assume this land because it's as far as we, our eye can see. Hang on, if we can only see 60 nautical miles on the sea, you can only see to that hill over there. So therefore, after that, not yours. Oh, no, they'll, they'll capture another uh, 100 kilometres past that. Oh. So these things were done to break down and, and disintegrate Aboriginal communities, Aboriginal people, purposefully. What did I say earlier about uh, Moreland? Purposeful dispossession, exactly the same attitude. And that resonates with, subhanAllah, what's happening currently in today's Same situation. thing that's happening in Palestine, mate, exactly. Subhanallah. Purposeful dispossession. The purpose behind the Israeli push or the Zionist push in Israel to get the Palestinians to leave uh, is the oil and gas in the Mediterranean. Mm. They want to have direct access to that. What's stopping them? is Gaza's in between them and the seaport for them to actually access, right? So if that's the problem, we can go back to 1957. I watched a video not long ago. The, uh, the head of defence in 1957, I forget his name now, but he was openly saying, Palestinians, take them out to the bloody desert and shoot them. Really? Who are you to say that? Coming from Poland or wherever, that you weren't even from this area here, but you're saying you... You're saying you're Jewish. Let's be real. You're Zionist Jewish and you're using that as a platform to disperse people. Mm. That's wrong. It's playing the same game here. How many people have you heard recently saying this wouldn't have happened if they didn't do that on the 7th of October? Well, hang on. What's happened before that? What's happened the 75 years before that? Mm. The purposeful dispossession, the purposeful oppression and persecution pushing people to the limit so they'll press their buttons and retaliate. Ah, so that's given us the opportunity to smash them again. Why should we have to, the rest of the world, accept uh, Zionist rule in Israel trying to mow the lawn every second, third year? Hmm. It's a known adage just to say that we're going to thin the population of the Palestinians out again. What what gives them the right to do that? It's amazing, and I, I really wanted to sort of touch on that. And yeah, amazing. like it's it's it's. I think a lot of us fail to see the the correlation between that, you mm. know. And, and I think That's especially our, our younger youth, especially our Muslim brothers and sisters yeah. out there. Who, I'm not asking. I'm not asking Muslim youth to rise up and take arms and get all offended and start having a go at Jewish people in the street. No, but support uh, rallies, support their compassion to be able to continue to occupy their traditional lands. 
because they're not going to leave. And why should they? If anybody leaves, they're not going to get let back in. So yeah. they've already determined they're not going to leave. Mm. But the Israelis who've left some time ago, gone overseas, raised their kids, those kids, when you look at most of them, have made good lives for themselves. You mean Palestinians? They've become, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, they've, Palestinian. become, they've become professional people and they're helping other people with those skills, doctors, lawyers, all sorts of things, yeah? Mm. Uh, they can't go back there to, to, to provide home, those services to those people that are there because they won't get let back in. Now, that just isn't fair. Why is it fair for the rest of the world to say uh, Israel can have the right to defend itself, but uh, an, a Palestinian person can't get, um, um, can't get citizenship in any other country? Why is that? It can't be in Allah's biggest plan to make them the persecuted people forever because if the Jewish people are saying they're the ones that have been persecuted all this time, why are they doing the same thing that they object to themselves being persecuted? Mm. Why? It's amazing. Amazing. Um, and subhanAllah, we always love to uh, end the podcast on the an I am stand. On a, on a high note? <laughs> yeah, on, well, on a high note, which is an I am stand. So we would like you to describe yourself in a single concise I am statement. Now, but before we end it, um, I would like to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost for allowing us to do this uh, podcast oh. and, the, and our audience who are watching. Uh, alhamdulillah, we have reached some amazing milestones uh, with our yeah. audience. We are international, uh, worldwide. Um, 10,000 on yeah, we've Instagram. Hit, yeah, we've hit 10,000 subscribers on Instagram, almost 2,500 on YouTube. So again, we would love for our brothers and sisters to okay. subscribe so you don't miss out on comments. So we can improve and share everything we do here at the Safi Bros Podcast. So please, we would also appreciate some ratings on all the platforms as well. So for your personal I am statement, what would you say that would be? I am a humble Aboriginal Muslim Australian willing to share and support others to um, fulfil their potential. Akbar. Mashallah. for sharing. I mean. Zakmullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Thank you.